Welcome to The Medium Project. This is a podcast hosted by Bibliocinephiles, discussing adaptations of various mediums for the screen. Join us as we give our thoughts on the hits and misses when it comes to casting, set design, and overall the looks of the worlds that have been adapted. We'll have these conversations with a medium amount of research and a large amount of passion. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Today, once again, myself, Josh, and my co-host here, Sarah Warland, are discussing Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, one of our favorites, one of my favorites, I'll speak for myself first, one of my favorites in the series. It really won me over. From Warner Brothers Pictures. To do this. And I'm very excited to discuss this one today. Sarah, how are you feeling? I am feeling very excited about this movie, too. This is a fun one. And I was going to say, I'm surprised you actually called it Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince rather than HP6 or something like that. (laughs) The latest model at Hewitt Packard. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. No. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this one. Um, Josh and I were talking about like what were some of the... Because it feels really different. I think that was something that we pulled out of this was that um, this movie feels like a very, like kind of its own product in certain ways. Like there's lots of different adaptations that have happened in order to make, again, another very long book turned into a movie that is under, I don't know how long this movie was. Did you take note of that? I don't know. It's like two two hours and 26 minutes. I watched a movie that was less than two hours the other day. And I was like, I have been cheated of my movie experience. This should distract me from the world for at least three and a half hours. (laughs) There's a big debate out there in the world of what is the perfect time. And I feel like a lot of people lean towards 90 minutes, but I do not mind a long movie. It keeps me captivated. I'm like, I don't have to think about the real world for so long. This is great. Um, But yeah, so I don't know. Do we want to jump in with uh, some of our like, topics that we thought about for this one. Sorry, I'm messing up our Oh, you're fine. Absolutely. And also, (laughs) (laughs) I have a correction. Two hours and 33 minutes. I was wrong by 10 or six. (laughs) Correction. (laughs) This movie was two hours and 33 minutes. I can't believe my guess in the dark was off by less than 10 minutes. Oh my gosh. Oh, I just kind of threw a number out there. But but yeah, no, I think I think this movie was interesting because I think that there was a lot of changes. There's a lot. I think we start seeing a lot more additions, like uh, whole additions of scenes. And we're starting to see a lot of things like starting the implications of the things that were moved in the previous ones. Uh, As much as I did talk about in the last one, how it starts throwing things off. I think I really see it here. But also at the same time, I don't know if there's, I mean, there are a few of them that really, really bug me. And also, though, the, the the little things they add, I actually really appreciated. And so, yeah. and one being one being the 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 diner scene in the beginning where Harry's sitting there, because that's not in the book at all. But I feel like it adds a lot. And maybe this is just also my continual like, um, 
my continual desire for Harry to not end up with Ginny, where I'm like, this just gives him another out here where it's like, oh, it's possible. First there's Luna, and then now they have the the girl. I don't think she has a name, but the, the waitress um, in the diner. And that was a possibility. He could have had a relationship there, had a normal life outside of being hunted as a teenager and being trying to be murdered. So I actually do appreciate that little addition. Yeah, that was one of the interesting things that I was thinking about in kind of like why this movie feels so different. But I also think why this book feels so different from a lot of the other ones is because it is much more relationally focused. So like, I think there's a lot more kind of like um, exposition that goes on. There's a lot more like long dialogues, like when Harry is having his like lessons used loosely with Dumbledore when mm. they're diving into the memories about Tom Riddle. And then they talk about Tom Riddle's childhood and kind of where he came from, his family with the Gaunts and all of that kind of stuff. So this book just felt a lot more kind of like, less insane things are happening. It's not like Goblet of Fire where like every two months Harry's life is like almost ending. <laughs> um, but of course, Harry does almost die in this as well, which is great. That wouldn't be a Harry Potter book without that. But Very um, true. yeah, I think one of the things too, I was, uh, Josh and I were talking about this before we started recording. I think I really like this book because of that. I like the kind of like long dialogues, the history, like getting into all of that background info. And I think a lot of it is it sets up kind of this study, especially in this book, of like four young boys' stories, like where they came from, how they ended up becoming who they were, because we know that there's kind of that parallel between Harry and Tom Riddle, right? Like they're both orphans. Um, they're both like very powerfully magical. They're both half-blood. Um, they have a, one magical parent and one muggle parent and, um, or not muggle, but muggle-born parent. And so it's like, there's that interesting parallel. And then we start mm. to understand that like Harry has some similar personality characteristics. Like when he's, they, I like how they do that parallel in the movie too, where they like go from the memory with Slughorn to then Harry kind of like approaching him after class in the exact same way. Yeah. But I also think it's interesting in the way that this book and movie start to hint at, um, kind of the background of Snape and Dumbledore as well of in this book, right? It's Half-Blood Prince. It's Snape's book, really, in a lot of ways in like also like a weird inception way of it's named for Snape, the book, but then also his copy of Advanced Potion Making changes a lot of the trajectory of the entire action of this book. But then we also start to get hints of understanding Dumbledore, um, which only gets capitalized on then in the next book in Deathly Hallows. But I think that the idea of like, um, right, we meet Dumbledore and he has his withered hand and we don't learn a lot about that until the next book when we start to um, see that the reason he put the ring on was because he wanted to see his family again, right? And mm. we, like when Harry's like forced to feed him the potion in the cave, um, what we find out that Dumbledore is seeing is that he's reliving the moment in his life when Ariana died. And so it's like all of these really interesting connections that we start to come to understand. And then when Snape makes his confession at the end, he's like, you dare to use my own spell against me? And you're like, no, <laughs> what? It was you all along. The whole time. Um, so anyway, I just think that that kind of, it's a really interesting study, I think, of all of these characters who've had 
like Harry, obviously we get the inside scoop on his growing up years, but then we get these hints of Snape. We get these hints of Dumbledore and of Tom Riddle and how all of them have this really kind of intertwined story and act in many ways as sort of foils to one another. Um, And I would say that like, I would always pair Dumbledore and Snape together as a really interesting study because I think that the way that they complicate our understandings of good and evil adds a lot of layering to Harry Potter Mm. Um, and that it's not always like good doesn't always look a certain way and nor does evil. And so I think it's a really interesting. Yeah, I, I just think it's a great complication. I think that's one of the reasons I've always really loved this book and that I think the movie, though it's very different from the book in a lot of ways, I like that I think they stay true to the fact that relationships are what organize this book, right? It's not all of these other events or big happenings in the wizarding world. It's very much relationships that determine um, how this book moves forward and how the movie moves forward in the end too. Yeah, no, I I, I would agree because yeah, they they it does seem to leave out some like seemingly. I mean, it is all important in the world of Harry Potter, and and so I guess like when you the filmmakers have two and a half hours to decide <laughs> what they want to put in, what they want to include, what's going to keep the story going with the story that they've developed in the five movies before this, that you do have to make these decisions. You do have to decide whether or not you want to, yeah, you cut out, you cut out the, the other minister, the muggle minister and the right. relationship between them or whatever. And, and then you cut out, um, some of the, even with Harry inheriting criminal place and creature and yeah. talks about that and talks about, you know, the, the relationship that Harry has with, with Snape and he hates him even more because he blames partly that, the reason why his godfather's gone is because of Snape's, but, but they, they, to make those decisions, I'm sure weren't easy, but I think too, that the decisions they did make, I have a, I have a lot of respect and appreciation for this one. I don't think I necessarily leave it or have as much issues as the other ones. And also I will say that's exciting about this book. I mean, this book and movie in particular, um, as you had mentioned, that we start seeing the characters move into the gray areas or the gray areas between good and evil. We also yeah. see a little more gray areas in how we rank or how I have heard the rankings of Harry Potter. I mean, even on this podcast, there's a lot of like myself saying, always putting Chamber of Secrets at the bottom. We, Sarah and I have debated and had conversations <laughs> about that. And also, I know there's a lot of people out there that always like there's so much disrespect about the the lack of understanding of the importance of Chamber of Secrets, which doesn't change my ordering of the 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 experience for me in general. But the cool thing about Half Blood Prince is we start seeing the uh, there's a big importance to Chamber of Secrets, and it yeah. starts the layers that come out from the last you know five movies start to come out. It's like oh, these are all building on each other, specifically with the Horcruxes, as yeah. Sarah has mentioned. Yes, as I have made my points before. <laughs> But like, I think that is a good point to make here, Josh, is just to like, and I will continue to hammer home that Chamber of Secrets is absolutely crucial to the entire series. But I think it's even in the movie, right? There's that one scene where um, Dumbledore is like examining the diary and looking at where Harry has stabbed it with the basilisk thing. And I think that even that, right, it starts to weave together a lot of what has happened in these previous five books. Um, that it starts to kind of, I think, bring things around. And then, of course, book seven is starting... Well, book seven is weird, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this next time, but it's like 
tying things together while also introducing so many more threads that you're like, what's happening? Like, is this actually going to be the end of this series? Um, but yeah, I really like the the way that book six bring kind of ha- hammers home the importance of what has happened in so many of the previous um, previous books and also kind of the like small insights that we'd gotten so far into Voldemort's character start to make sense of like why it was important for us to know that um, because it becomes critical for us to, well, for us, I'm like inserting myself into the story, (laughs) but like it becomes critical for Harry to be able to understand that he has weird insight into Voldemort for various reasons, right? Um, But it becomes critical for him to embrace that rather than kind of push it away like he was, especially in book five. Um, and kind of be like, okay, it's good to understand your enemy, right? Um, and yeah. and Dumbledore kind of revealing that like that's what he's been doing all along is trying to kind of figure out how to guerrilla warfare Voldemort into defeat. <laughs> so yeah. I, yeah, I think this book's super interesting in that way. Yeah, I think I think too as you as you mentioned that I think I changing or like seeing how my my thoughts on Dumbledore using Harry. And the strategy in that and how much, I mean, in, in here, he even, he talks about how he's like, I'm once again, I have to ask too much of you. I, he's, mm-hmm. he's done that a couple of times. And, uh, I think that I'm starting to have in this last rewatch too a little like, oh, okay, not that you should use teenagers. And I've, I've always had that problem of like with Harry, I'm like, dude, he's just like the whole, like, let's just use him as a strategy game to defeat Voldemort or defeat this evil. But the more I think I, I see these things like you're saying about the insights or them finding figuring out the connection and it just is so complex. It's like, what decisions do you make? What do you not make? And especially when, yeah, Harry's just such a pivotal part in that connection with Voldemort, it starts being, makes yeah. me realize like, oh, you they don't fully blame Dumbledore for doing yeah. those things. That's a really interesting point. And I think, yes, for sure, something will flesh out in, in the next episode of the yes. podcast. But <laughs> I'm thinking about that too of like right at the end of the movie when McGonagall tells Harry, Harry's walking out of Dumbledore's office and she says to him like, he really did care about you. Like, and I I think that is, it's such a hard, yeah, it's a hard road to navigate in what do I think of Dumbledore because I'm, I feel certain that he did care very much for Harry, but also then feeling very much like I disagree with so much of the way that he treated Harry but then, of course, you become you come to know like more of more of the reason why it was like I mean Harry himself is a Horcrux, right? Like we come to that point in in book seven, and so it is. It's kind of that like he was going to have to die anyway, and, and mm. so it's like maybe that is the merciful thing then to do is to give him the chance then to also destroy Voldemort in that option. I don't know. So it's like I think <laughs> that's one of the things I really. I really do like about these books is that while it is very clear what is good and evil in like a very much overarching way, the smaller decisions that lead up to those moments, I think show the very difficult kind of moral dilemmas and moral choices we all make on a daily basis, though hopefully we're not all making choices about like (laughs) 17-year-olds or (laughs) 16-year-olds living and dying, right? But um, I do think that it is kind of an interesting study of the way we oftentimes perceive books as being like, oh yeah, like here's the theme, right? Like good versus evil. Um, but this gives a lot more nuance to that and layering, which I, I mean, that's one of the reasons I've always loved the Harry Potter books. So, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so now to just give a little more, the book, the book came out in July 16th, 2005, and the movie came out four years later, almost to the date, July 15th, 2009. We have, this movie was made by the same director as the previous one, and he will carry out the rest of the series, David Yates. And we welcome back writer Steve Cloves. He wrote all of them except for the, the previous one, Order of the Phoenix. And then it is composed once again by Nicholas Hooper, who did Order of the Phoenix. But I'm so excited. We'll get there. Alexander Desplat comes onto the scene in the next uh, movies. But the, so for now, we still have Nicholas Hooper. just still does an excellent job. But the this one was nominated for one Oscar, and it was for cinematography. It was Bruno Del Bono. I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong, but Bruno Del Bono. I I think that this one being nominated for cinematography is really, I think, really great. I think the the shots that they do, the the way they use different shots, and the way they even use coloring in this one, like the just the visuals of it were really well done. Especially as they shift from like a more muted or like less saturated coloring in certain scenes specifically for to bring on a little more darker darker edge to it the beginning opening shot with harry and dumbledore the scene where harry attacks malfoy the ending it just feels like a lot more yeah less colors the way it's shot and i think yeah bruno did an excellent job with that he's done some other uh some of my more favorite works like inside lewin davis he often collaborates with uh the cohen brothers which i am a big fan of their work so uh, excellent guy, uh, excellent job he done here. So that being said, we are going to transition into, why don't we jump into the categories and we'll kick it off with Bloody Brilliant. Sarah, what do you got for us? Yes. Okay, that's a great transition too because what I was thinking was one of the um, scenes where I think that kind of the lighting and the coloring is really interesting is the Spinner's End scene where it's um, Snape, and Bellatrix and Narcissa Malfoy, uh, and they meet in Snape's like childhood home, which again connects kind of back to my point previously. We're getting insight into Snape's childhood, um, but that Spinner's End scene is fantastic. I mean, I, I think it's like such a great adaptation of that scene from the book as well. Um, but also, just to have those three actors in one room is it's like whoa powerhouse right there you have helen mccrory alan rickman and helena bonham carter which it's crazy thinking out of those three only helena bonham carter is the is the only one of those three that's still alive so it's also kind of this interesting time capsule of thinking about kind of a celebration of um helen mccrory and alan rickman's work but it's just such a powerful scene and it's so interesting too, right to if you if you know the story of half-blood prince you know how loaded that moment is in regard to what's going to happen for the rest of the book. And that Snape is already battling with this decision that Dumbledore has asked him, asked him to kill him, right? Like he's like given him this job. And I think in that moment, right, some of the gravitas of that scene is that Snape is for real accepting that job in that moment by, by agreeing to the unbreakable vow. So I just think that that scene is amazing. Oh, Alan Rickman is so good too. Anyway, so moving on from that, my second nomination for this category would be the Weasleys, Wizarding Weezes, that we get to see their shop in this movie. And it's amazing. Like, I really think that they did such a fantastic job in that adaptation of just kind of 
especially the contrast of Diagon Alley in that moment where like so many of the other shops are boarded up and there's not many people there. And yet Fred and George are like doing booming business (laughs) on Diagon Alley and they have all these people in their shop. And I just think it's a really cool, um, it just speaks to, I think, the energy that Fred and George bring to all of these books, even though they might be classified more as kind of side characters. Um, I think they are really important. And something interesting about that, I always wondered, I was like, okay, I get the like whole kind of joke on like wheezes, right? Like that's like, haha, you're laughing. So you're like wheezing. But I looked up the word wheeze and it actually means an old joke. Like it's like an old joke or a story or an aphorism or a routine. So it's like, that makes so much sense. Huh. Weasley's wizarding wheezes. So I thought that was a fun little fact to drop in there. I didn't and know that. my last nomination for this category is Harry when he takes... Felix Felicis is hysterical. Like that scene alone is probably one of the reasons I love this movie so much because it's such a different side of Daniel Radcliffe's acting that we get to see. Like, I mean, he's a kid who has been marked from the beginning of his life. Well, first he was like abused for 11 years and then he was like, finds out that he's like the arch nemesis of some huge wizard who's always trying to kill him. Like the poor kid has had a pretty serious life. (laughs) And in that moment, it's like all of his cares are lifted. And he's so funny and like weird and enlightened. And so that one is just great. And definitely the like, it's the pincers. (laughs) So that's my other nomination for a bloody brilliant adaptation is just getting to see Daniel Radcliffe flex a little bit of a different acting muscle in that and getting kind of a different insight into Harry in that way of like, what would he be like unencumbered by all of the cares of the world that he has to carry all the time? Absolutely. Um, But what would your nomination be? So Josh is going to nominate one and then we each get to pick our overall bloody brilliant adaptation. You know, I think I'm not sure if I have like this one's not so much. um, It's a nominee. I'm going to nominate it, but um, it's not up there. Because I think yours, I think I have one, uh, especially one on on your list that I'm like, yep, that's it. But um, the the I, it's not quite. It's fleshed out in the movie, and they kind of mention it in the book. It's just that intro with with the Death Eaters kidnapping uh, Ollivander and yeah. um, Florine and the attack. Well, they don't really show the the kidnapping of Florine in the in the book. I mean, the movie, but the attack in the the movie with them taking down the bridge and just that world of like, oh, now it's impacting the muggle world, I thought was pretty cool yeah. in how they did it. Uh, but yeah, so anyways, that that, that would be my only um, nomination. But I will, I want to comment though on your three picks, the one with with uh, the Spinner's End. It, I love that adaptation too as well, even though it is different. Like going back mm-hmm. to how like some of the things are adapted, but I don't mind it as much. Like it is a little different in like how it goes about. Like the outcome is still the same. He makes the vow. But in the book, there seems to be a little more differences of like hesitations or more angst or more. I mean, obviously, it's longer conversation. It's more drawn out. But but the fact that, yes, those three, like, I just think having them in that room, in that scene, especially like you're you're mentioning that two have passed, just the power that's in that scene and the power, the, the energy that's in that scene, what they brought to the screen, I think one of my favorite um, experiences in this whole movie. Uh, so... And then yeah. I didn't know that about the wheezes. That's actually a good point. I would always think like wheezes, like wheezes, like just like you mentioned. I was like, that doesn't make sense, but there we go. It's all cleared up. And oh my gosh, the 
the Felix Felicis Harry Potter is just one of my favorite. I want to see a whole <laughs> redone whole series, like the whole do all seven movies again, but it's just him drunk on Felix Felicis, <laughs> just hammered. Oh my gosh, him just like losing his mind the whole time. So great. Okay, so out of those, then what would be your overarching pick for most bloody brilliant? Absolutely, the the whole sequence of the Felix Felicis with Harry Potter, <laughs> like when he. <laughs> When he like when he's like about to leave and and uh, Slughorn's like Harry you can't leave and he goes Harry and he turns around and looks and goes Sir, Sir. <laughs> kills me every time he's Do like well that. then come along yes. then just he's like, then by all means come along <laughs> oh it's so funny so yes that's a hands down my pick. I love it. That's my pick too. I do. I just think it's so funny. And I love how it starts out too when he's like, I'm going to go down to Hagrid's. <laughs> Both Ron and Hermione are like, what? No, <laughs> that's not what you're supposed to do. Which is just like, I don't know. It's just, it's really funny. I love it. It's a good comedic relief in an overall, like very dark movie in many yes. ways. And it's a, I, I agree. It's a very great uh, comedic relief. And then to touch on what you had said about how he can just be free or like feel at least free from all these burdens when everything in his life is either going the wrong way, seems like it's going the wrong way. He hasn't had it easy. And then for these hours, several hours, he's able to everything go his way, feel good about it, be a kid or experience some sort of normality, even though he's absolutely acting and is abnormal because of the, the potion. But I don't know. I just think that there's something really special there too. It's like, man, Harry, it's like a breath. Like I'm like, Harry can just yeah. breathe for a little bit and just everything's just going to work out and go the way that they planned, you know? Uh, I think it's like the only, at least in the, like for the books and the movies, right? In the movie, it's like five, 10 minutes max. And then in the book, it's like a chapter long. I think it's like the only respite I get where I'm like not constantly worried for Harry's life. I'm like, for these <laughs> 10 yes. minutes, I can like relax. Like Harry's gonna be okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my oh, gosh. Okay, Josh, take us away. What are the bloody hell? What are your nominations for this category? Yes, bloody hell. So, okay, so for this category, I'm going to nominate three of my most bloody hell, either bloody hell, what happened with this adaptation, or bloody hell, this was like the most insane thing. Like it's shocking that they allow this to happen. So, <laughs> which actually is kind of interesting. I'll just real briefly touch one because it's a part of my bloody brilliant nomination as much as i like that there's an aspect of it that i think is like bloody hell uh why did you do this but and it's the fact that all death eaters can fly that kind of made me upset and frustrated because i'm kind of jumping ahead but we learned later that only one person should be able to do that and it's none of the death eaters except for or two people and it's it, voldemort and snape and so that was a little frustrating to me, seeing all of them just like flying around everywhere like like it was a normal thing because it kind of took away from this like, oh, they are different moment. But anyways, so that's it. But um, okay, bloody hell. The, the addition of the scene of the Bureau being attacked by the Death Eaters during Christmas was super frustrating to me as much as I would love to have Bellatrix on the screen more and have to see Helena do her thing as a complete just sociopath I, she's incredible that whole addition is a little frustrating and for a little stupid reasons in my mind it's just i'm like i don't understand why you guys are apparating 
why are you guys running? Like the Death Eaters are literally flying around everywhere and then they're just running and there's like fire going on and they're jumping through and being blocked by. I'm like, I'm confused. And the fact that I thought the Bureau was supposed to be protected and that they couldn't attack it, that was confusing in the movies. And then also when they set the whole Bureau on fire, like I don't understand how... They just didn't put it out. Like you see earlier where Dumbledore's in the memory with uh, little Tom Riddle and he sets a whole ass dresser on fire without his wand and then he puts it out like nothing. And then later, half dead, mostly dead Dumbledore is conjuring a forest fire while fully alive wizards can't put out a fire just simply. I just didn't, I don't, I don't really buy that. So that was really frustrating. Bloody hell number one. The next bloody hell that was the cursing of Katie Bell in the sense that not that it was a bad adaptation, but in the sense that it was shocking. Like it was like sinister. Like I'm thinking conjuring, like just complete like uh, exorcist type of moment where I'm like this. I mean, even when we were watching this, I was like typing uh, notes and texting Sarah and I said some words out loud in real life because of the scream, the screech. It took me off guard, but I think that that scene's so well done and very, very shocking. So that's why I have it bloody hell. Not because it's bad, but because it was shocking. And then bloody hell number three is going to be the ending uh, fight at Hogwarts between the Dumbledore's army, all the students who are trying to defend and even the Order of the Phoenix come and show up and they're defending they're defending Hogwarts and they're trying to, you know, just save their lives, save their friends' lives. I think that the removal of that was a big bummer for me because one, Harry in the movie drinks the whole uh, Felix Felicis in one moment when Slughorn's like, hey, one drops more than enough and he just downs it for his whole adventure as much as I love that. (laughs) Selfish. Because in the books, he saves some and then he gives it to all the Dumbledore people, Dumbledore army, and they save, like they're literally miraculous savingly saving most people. And I think that that was a kind of a bummer. And especially because we miss, we miss the, the gruesome attack on Bill and that moment between Bill and Mrs. Weasley in the hospital wing. Um, I just really love, like, I think Mrs. Weasley is a first round draft pick for moms of all moms. And that is maybe, maybe not as important to the filmmakers. I don't know, but it was important to my heart and it was important to my emotions <laughs> to see. I wanted that in the, in the movie. So that being said, yeah. those are my three bl- bloody hells. Sarah, do you have an additional nomination to throw in there? I always have additional nominations, but one thing I wanted to say there too, I, I think like your last bloody hell hits on some of what I think is weird about the seventh movie is that Bill just sort of becomes a character in in the movies. And hey, he hasn't been around a lot before that, has he? Mm-hmm. In the movies, at least. In the book, like he's like a major player in book six. Like we meet him in book four when he comes for the Triwizard Tournament. Um, and we see more of him in book six. And then by book seven, it like makes sense that he's around. But to me, it's just like a little weird. Like in the movies, you're like, oh, all of a sudden... He- here's like this guy like hello bill weasley we know you're a weasley because you have red hair but like other than that like who the heck are you so no that makes a lot of sense um uh okay my nomination for this one is going to unsurprisingly be the beginning of this that they cut out dumbledore not visiting the dursleys to get harry 
Um, and I agree. I think there's like some really interesting crossovers of like how they're trying to interpret in the movie that like the muggle world is starting to understand that like something's not right. Like there's something off. And so there needs to be sort of interaction with the muggle world at the beginning of this movie. And so that's why they cut out the visit with the muggle prime minister, which is like hilariously veiled with all of these like unidentified references to American politicians, which is just so funny to me. <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I don't know. I just think that this missing of Dumbledore coming to the Dursleys where it's like they have tried so hard every day that Harry has been with them to crush the magic out of him. And then Dumbledore just like shows up <laughs> on their front step. Yeah. And he's like the wizard of all wizards. He does nothing to like disguise himself. He just shows up in Little Whinging and is like, hey, like, peace, guys, here to get Harry. Like, we're going to go on an adventure. <laughs> but also, I'm going to like sit here and little champagne glasses are going to smash against your head, which is so funny. I think that's actually the um, illustration in the book for that chapter where they're like, the Dursleys are all like crammed on this little couch and then like little drinks are like slamming them in the head, which is so funny. But also that he like has that moment where he says something to the Dursleys of like, you have never treated Harry like he's one of your own, but at least Harry has escaped to the terrible abuse that you have inflicted upon your own son. And they are like mm. so confused. They're like, what? We would, like we've given him everything that he ever wants. But I think it's like such an important moment of kind of like, noting that uh, like Dudley, we don't hear much from him in that scene, but there's something going on inside of him, which then like makes kind of the catalyst for uh, the scene where Harry and the Dursleys part in book seven, which is so, I think so important. So anyway, I just, I like really, I think probably, I probably complained about this in the last episode, but I can't remember now. Like I was upset that you don't get the connection between Harry and Petunia in book five when she knows about the Dementors. I'm upset that they cut out this scene at the beginning of six when Dumbledore shows up at their house again. And I, I don't know, it just, it that frustrates me because while it might be a small thing, I feel like it's one of the kind of devices of this entire series of how they're organized in that it's like Dumbledore was the one who dropped Harry off at the Dursley's house. And then he picks him up for the last time that that he would be alive to do that. And so, I don't know, it just it seemed like a little bit of a miss on my behalf uh, in regard to this adaptation that they would remove that moment of encountering the Dursleys and Dumbledore <laughs> in funny discussion. <laughs> no, I, I, I love that addition. That is a great one because I, I also hold the reconciliation between Harry and most of the... Thursley's uh, very dear. Like I think they're as yeah. much as how terrible they are as, and rude. And like you're saying like that, he's never, you know, he didn't have to deal with any of this with your son. Like, I think that, that yeah. those little moments are very important. And especially when they say goodbye for the last time, which the, removing yeah. it from this, I feel like sets out the second one to like remove the emotional departure in the, in the next book or the next movie yeah. as we'll see. But um, yeah. So overall, though, what do you? What is your most bloody bloody hell pick? I feel selfish, but I'm picking my own. <laughs> Don't feel selfish. It's great. <laughs> I that is like very that's like very difficult for me to swallow in regard to this movie. So I'm sticking with the lack of Dumbledore visiting. Uh, the oh my gosh, why am I blanking on their address? Whatever the Dursleys' house. <laughs> oh my. 
No, Privet Drive, number... Privet Drive, number four, Privet Drive. Four Thank Privet you. Drive. I was like, really, in the like grand scheme of my life, this is like small fries details, but it's going to bother me until I remember. So. <laughs> well, What's yours, Josh? To add to your selfishness, it's my pick number two. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> it's That would be my second pick, but my number one's going to be... My number one's going to be the the end fight. Like I would really yeah. have liked to see that uh, on the screen and have yeah, those little sure. moments. So that is my choice. But Makes next sense. category, Sarah Worland, you have best cast for us. What you got? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay, good. This might actually, there might be a few spats in this discussion um, between Josh and I. So buckle up. But my first uh, nomination for best cast would be the guy they have playing Fenrir Greyback, the, um, oh. the werewolf. So his okay. name is Dave Legeno. And uh, I just think he's so creepy. Like he's like so supremely creepy. And so far in the movie, right? Like, or in the movies, we've only seen one other werewolf and that's Lupin. And Lupin, Fenrir Greyback was actually the werewolf that bit Lupin and changed him into a werewolf. Um, so kind of like this interesting kind of full circle moment. But it's like Lupin looks like a normal man. Like when we see him, right? And he's described as being totally normal. Like um, he just looks a little shabby, but that's not because he's a werewolf. It's because he's sick. Well, which I guess is part of it, but like he's sick all the time and he can't get a job. So it's more just because, because he's poor. And, but Fenrir is like very sinister. I like that you use that word for the Katie Bell scene. I'm going to recycle it here. He's very sinister and he's kind of like uncanny Valley. Like he looks like a person, but there's like something off about him. He's very much kind of like has some like animalistic, overtones like he's like a little bit hairy like i don't know he just creeps me out like he's like one of those guys that you would see on the street and you're like i'm gonna cross over this street because i'm you give me a weird vibe like i'm afraid of you um which is of course exactly what he's supposed to be like that's the exact vibe he's supposed to be giving this is a super sad fact of that i was looking up who dave legano is and he died in 2014 hiking death valley oh my he like died this is why i don't go outside guys this is the indoors is safe not outdoors anyway um so he would be rest in peace dave legeno but he's one of my nominations for best cast for fenrir grayback um my second nomination is cormac mcclagan who i just endlessly think he is such a funny insertion into this book um so josh and i watched this movie and we were texting each other while we were watching it and we kept going back and forth about like Cormac McLaggen is a sleaze. Like he is like the sleaziest sleaze scumbag, but we all knew him in high school. Like absolutely every single one of us knew a Cormac McLaggen in high school. And, and Josh was like, why is Hermione not choosing Cormac? That's what all high school girls would do. And I was like, no, because Hermione is smart. But Cormac McLaggen, he's played by Freddie Stroma. He is... Oh my gosh, he plays Cormac to a T, I think. I think he's just absolutely perfect where he's like kind of good looking and you're like, oh, but you're terrible. You're like a terrible person. <laughs> and all you care about is sports. Like this is awful. But funny fact about that, any of you are Bridgerton fans, Freddie Stroma actually plays Prince Friedrich in Bridgerton. And I like, he looks so different that it totally threw me. But then I did a little digging and in fact, he is the same person. So that's my second nomination. My third nomination for best cast is Lavender Brown, who is played by Jesse Cave. Lavender plays Lavender. I like, I even think she's Lavender, right? Jesse Cave plays Lavender to the T. She is 100% 
the kind of simpering, like, oh my gosh, you just make me cringe. Like, <laughs> high school girl, I'm obsessed with high school boy. And it absolutely, I just think it's so funny. So anyway, Lavender Brown is my third uh, nomination for best cast. So <laughs> Josh, That's any incredible. thoughts, any nominations? Oh, I, I have some thoughts for sure. No, well, <laughs> I will say, I want to comment first. So on the, yes, the, the Fernara Grayback, I think like very similarly to Voldemort, right? With the reptilian nose, like there's just something, it's like, no, they're clearly a person, but also clearly I'm thrown off a little bit with those. So I I think Sinister and the way he portrays him, and especially, and this is tied back to my bloody hell is just that, that we see more of his Sinister in that scene where they talk about how he would go after kids or he'd go Mm -hmm. after young people, which is why Lupin was one of his victims right and so yep. i think that adds to that sinisterness of him of like he specifically targets young young children and so the yep. fact that he's in hogwarts and they bring him along or they choose like i think there's yeah. even a conversation in the book where they're like we're not taking him and he's like i'm yeah. i'm coming no and then no, like, no he's I going think, i think it's draco like draco uh draco didn't know that fenrir was gonna come and then He's like, why is he here? Like, you didn't tell me you were going to bring him. Because, and which is such a cool humanizing moment for Draco, where it gives you, again, it's that complication of good versus evil. It would be so easy to say Draco is evil and he's a terrible person because he's trying to kill Dumbledore and like because of this like blood feud between him and Harry. But there's this moment where he's like, no, he actually really does care that like his friends don't get turned into werewolves, right? <laughs> like like he, he cares that like yes. children he goes to school with aren't turned in, like turned into these bloody masses. Yes. And I think, yeah, it's definitely a humanizing moment, which you could argue it's like, well, Drago's just like caring about the people that he cares about, right? Not the other people that are in danger. But I mean, he's also 16 and like, I sort of only cared about myself and I was 16 too. And hopefully I'm not like trying to murder people. So anyway, <laughs> that's tangent, but-, but- yeah, but I no, though, no, that's well moment. said, and especially because the humanizing of the Malfoys is one of my favorite things that I'm we're going to be able to talk about in the next uh, episode. Yeah. So I think that's a anyways well said, great points, and the Cormac uh, conversation <laughs> I think is so great because I mean I get it like like okay this guy is I mean I know everyone has their opinions but he's like more attractive in a lot of ways than Ron not a good person. Ron's a way better character, way better person. But I'm just like, Hermione doesn't know that. Just kiss a little bit. And then when you find out he's a terrible person, just, you know, go back. Go back. Like, like this is what actually would have happened in high school. Yes, exactly. Hermione would have been like, okay. And which I guess she kind of does because I love that part when Hermione's like, well, I invited Cormac because I thought you'd bother Ron the most. Yep. (laughs) Oh, this is real. This is real right now. Yes, I'm not endorsing that we should like go around just making out with attractive people just for the sake of attractiveness, but I'm just saying that's what would have happened in high school. That's thank you for reminding me of that. Um, 100%. And, and Lavender Brown, uh, yeah, that's a great. That's a great, she bugs me to all end all end of end yeah. all whatever that phrase is. She bugs me a whole ton. She is like second or third underneath Umbridge. So. Great. That's a great pick. My <laughs> my nominations, my first nomination was going to be Harry on, Fel- on Felix Felicis, like specifically <laughs> yes. like that casting. But since he already took like a lot of the win already with uh, Bloody Brilliant and I, my nomination is going to be Schmeagol as the Inferi. Because <laughs> <laughs> I love the, 
I love the crossover between the worlds. I'm like, oh, look at this, Lord of the Rings <laughs> in the water, Schmeagol, <laughs> just dragging these people down underwater once again. But I think that that is a really great cast on the filmmaker's decisions. This was too, and this was too funny. Literally at the exact same time in that scene, Josh sends me, whoa, didn't know Smeagol was in this movie. And I said, oh, look, Gollum pulling Frodo down. <laughs> it's incredible. Too it's too also, good. Also, I don't know why I always say, I always add in an H. I always like to say Schmeagol, and I know it's Smeagol, but anyways, there's a... I feel like I feel like it works. Like, if you want to be, like, a little bit more, like, sibilant with your S, you can mm. say Smeagol, but then, like, Schmeagol. he's like Schmeagol, yeah. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't, yeah, I so. really feel <laughs> that he would not take issue with how his name is being said, and instead would just try and throttle you with his hands. So, <laughs> I think it's fine. <laughs> That's funny. Oh my gosh. So, okay, wait. I have I have one honorable mention that I have okay. to say here. Yes. Because it's it. definitely not someone new that's in this movie, but I do have to say I think Tom Felton deserves some recognition of how he plays Draco in this movie. And he's just like absolutely it's like that contrast of trying to come off with this confidence of like I like I was chosen to do this. I'm like, I'm like the shit sort of thing. And then him being absolutely torn apart, like inside of his dad's been arrested, right? He's been given this impossible task. His mom understands that the reason he's been given it is so that he will die. Like <laughs> he's mm -hmm. 16. Like I think just driving home that point is like all of these young people at Hogwarts are 16 years old in this movie. Uh, and in this book, at least that are like Harry's age, right? And so I just, I think he does such an incredible job. That scene where he goes into the bathroom and he like pulls off his sweater vest and he's just like weeping into the sink. My heart is like, <laughs> I'm like, I know you're a bad person and you're <laughs> trying to kill people, but like, I feel sad for you right now. It's just so good. And I really think I, I'm glad that there's a movie where Tom Felton gets to really kind of shine in that way because he's a terrific actor, especially a terrific young actor mm. um, for what he's been given and tasked with in this movie. And so, yeah, anyway, I just wanted to honorable mention Tom Felton. I know he's not a new character by any means, but his performance in this movie is incredible. No, I agree. He deserves it. And I think, yeah, just watching him display that inner turmoil, the display of like, like he thinks he's all bad. He thinks he's all hard. Kind of like the whole uh, coolest shit attitude, right? Especially yeah. his three-piece suit on a Hogwarts train as a 16-year-old. Yeah, but what the? No 16-year-old dresses that way. Can't handle. All, all black though. So much respect for that choice. Uh, and <laughs> But I I think, yeah, I think that's a, an excellent, especially because an excellent honorable mention just because uh, it's it's displaying his yeah he thinks he's this bad person and he wants to be welcomed and belonged into this world but i think deep down he's just you know he's a kid he has i think has at some point he has a decent heart that's just happened yeah. to be displaying a lot of bad actions uh right but you start to right. see that like tension and that confliction in that so yeah but what's your overall yeah, sure. what's your overall choice on this one Okay, this is tough. I really, honestly, I'm going with Smeagol as the Fury because <laughs> I that is too funny to me. That is like, I like I've thought about that several times over the past couple of days since it came up, and every time I'm like, this is the funniest thing that has ever been said about this movie. So I just have to go for the comedy factor on this one. I'm going with a uh, man. Andy Serkis somehow worked his way into being best cast in Harry Potter, a movie he's not. Even My guy. In. <laughs> 
my guy. Um, no, that's funny because I, I mean, my heart really did want to pick Harry on 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 Felix Felicis, uh, but I will also have to pick Schmeagel as as the inferior just because. I'm going to, yeah, toot my own, own, my own horn here with this nomination. But I'm really funny, so I'm choosing <laughs> this. <laughs> and the fact that that is hilarious that Andy Serkis made it funny. into this thing. But uh, Lavender funny. Brown, though, my, like, in an, my heart, that's my heart choice, but my like mental or th- my, my head choice would, I think, would have been Lavender Brown just because yeah. she did so good at just annoying me and also Ron and also everybody in the movie, everybody watching the movie, <laughs> anybody probably on set. Like, I think it's just She's an amazing. excellent performance. So She's amazing. Um, Good. Funny. Take us away for worst cast. Ooh, worst cast. Who is the worst uh, adaptation to the screen? Uh, for Okay, so this one was tough because it's actually like he was originally my best cast and I guess it's like a best cast, worst cast. So he falls more in the worst cast because my I let my my personal opinion and uh, my personal uh, like uh, distract me from the realities of this, but it's it's Horace Slughorn. It's uh, Jim Broadbent, which I love. I love him. Like I think he is such a good. He's an Oscar award winning actor. He was Pod Clock in The Borrowers, which is like one of the first movies I I think I can remember him in, and also just first movies I grew up watching. Um, quite a few times and so having him in there I thought he did such a good job I think he was a believable Slytherin as much as he's more of a like charming character Slytherin and not as dark and sinister but then you start to see a little bit of that you start to see like his greed or his desire to collect people and his desire to like be a part of the clout and brag about it and then when he starts to get a little angry with Harry when he starts being questioned and and I think you start to see that like Slytherin, you know, aspects or characteristics that I think we thought we would see more from. But as I was thinking more about it, you know, he's supposed to be this big guy with a silver mustache. And they mentioned in the book how he kind of looks like a walrus. And then he's supposed to be, you know, I don't know, like quite a large human. And in the movies, this he just acts differently too, soft spoken. Uh, he's a little more like just loopy. And so yeah. as much as I wanted to put him in best cast, as I sat on it, I was like, mm, you know, he probably belongs more so in the worst cast. So I'm going to put him there. I would just like to say that I was part of the catalyst of this change. Ah. So <laughs> I was going to get to that. No, I'm just kidding. Seen the light. Oh my God. Sarah did what she did plant that. She incepted me with this idea. It started small and it just turned into a virus and it took over my whole thinking. <laughs> And wow, ruined, thanks, thanks. Just call me COVID, category. Josh. Just call me COVID. It's I was thinking more, more Inception 2009, like Christopher Nolan Inception, not so much. You just called me a virus in 2022. There's no other way to interpret that than that I am COVID. You know, that's a good point. Great segue <laughs> into this next one that involves some sort of maybe getting viruses from each other. But uh, the... <laughs> Just continue. I have no idea where this is going to go. It, well, mono maybe, but so worst cast might be the first kiss. The, I don't know if that's uh, uh, acceptable, but first kiss, worst cast with the Harry and Ginny. So in all yeah. of in all of cinema, I think this is a stretch to nominate as worst cast as the first kiss, Fine. but because it can us. easily we be get in to the, make the rules. <laughs> bloody hell section. But I just was in terms of if first kiss was a character, or an actor that in that moment, terrible. 
first kiss, you let us down. Harry, I get it is probably mostly Ginny, movie Ginny's fault, not not Bonnie's fault, movie Ginny. There's a big difference. And <laughs> and also a little bit of Harry's fault. Just kidding, is, is equally their fault. So those are my two big nominations. I didn't have too, too much on this one. So Sarah. Yeah, I didn't really either. That's a really good point though, because that is the movie, like the first kiss of Harry and Ginny in the book is so epic. Like she literally flings herself across a room and into his arms and they make out in front of the entire Gryffindor common room, including Ron, which is the best part of it all. And yeah, it just, it makes me a little sad that they like totally shifted the tone of that first kiss from it being like so triumphant to it being like this secret. And then it's just like, do you two even like each other? Like, I don't know. It just feels like they're like being very, it's very forced to me, which agreed, definitely an instance of the way I think they have crafted movie Jenny, which like we said last time, we love Bonnie Wright. We don't love Jenny in the movie. But gosh, I, yeah, Horace Leghorn was my nomination. So I guess you kind of stole it from me, but it also means that I have convinced you, which is a win in my book. Um, Oh my goodness. (laughs) But yeah, I think the same things that you said about Horace Leghorn, like I just felt like he wasn't what I imagined him being. Like he wasn't, I love Jim Broadbent. Like I think he's an awesome actor. And I actually think that like his Slughorn is really compelling, but it's not the Slughorn that I imagined from the book either like visually he doesn't look like what I imagined Slughorn looking like and he's just a little too like bumbling and like mm. daughtery for, <laughs> for me like he just feels a little too kind of unaware um when in actuality I think in the book I he always felt kind of sly to me of like he always felt kind of like aware of everything that was going on around him and how it might be trying to influence him or affect him or whatever so anyway that's just a hammer home that I, yeah, I agree with you. I just think that adaptation fell a little bit short of what I was expecting there. Um, my only nomination, and I'm glad that you sort of bent the category for <laughs> for your explanation, because I think the vanishing cabinet is not good. It is not okay. what I imagined. It's too big. It's too ornate. Like in the book, right? They stuffed, um, was it Flint? It was one of the Quidditch players from Slytherin. Like, uh, Fred and George had like stuffed someone in that cabinet and he was stuck in it for like, he was like there for months. <laughs> like he, <laughs> he like, almost died. Like that's terrible. I shouldn't be laughing about that. But like he was stuffed in this cabinet and it always came off to me as like very, like a tight space, like not something that's super, it's not some, it's not like a closet that I would like walk into and then walk out of and be in a new space. It's not Narnia. Like I never imagined it as like the wardrobe from Chronicles mm. of Narnia. And then it's this like incredibly ornate, like beautiful piece of furniture that Draco is like doing something to fix it. I don't know. Anyway, that's it's like a tiny detail to be bugged about. (laughs) But I that was like I had to cast around for this one. So I guess that means that they did a great job in casting because I don't have a lot of issues (laughs) in this regard. But yeah, the vanishing cabinet was a little disappointing to me. Yeah, that's fair. That's that's, uh, that, that's a good nomination. Um, what which one is overall for you? I found your case for the worst cast first kiss very compelling. However, I do have to stick with my horse slughorn. Just not didn't didn't quite fulfill my expectations in that regard. What about oh you? Oh my goodness my my head my head says it should be slughorn, but I will not do that to Jim. 
Um, I refuse. Such loyalty. So I am going to go with the first kiss casted. The good that was that the, deserves it. It's terrible, terrible, terrible. It terrible. was very bad. <laughs> All righty. So we have our next category here. We're going to try to shoot these off as always, super fast. The lightning bolt scar quick round. And I will. We're going to list a f- few questions here, and uh, just each of us are going to answer it real fast, kind of. So here we go. So <laughs> Which the fir- always ends up being our slowest section of the entire recording. The uh, first question is going to be, would you use a spell where you do not know what it does? Like you find a spell like Harry does in a book, in a book that is clearly has helped you learn a bunch of stuff that you didn't know and you kind of took some shortcuts and then there's those words just scribbled on there. Would you do that? Would you use a spell you don't know what it does? I don't think that I would. I feel I have too much cautiousness inside of me to be like, I'm not sure what this is, so I can't use it. But you did make a good point in that like, Harry did kind of trust the book. Like the book had like assisted him thus far and hadn't like betrayed him. But I don't know. I don't think I would. Would you? Um, I think like now Josh would not. I think high school Josh. You, Josh, like <laughs> 10 years ago, absolutely you would. Uh, probably, you know, you, <laughs> you especially, especially if like you were saying, you, you go through this whole thing and you trust it. And also if it says four enemies next to it specifically, like I'm like, Sus. oh, I'm not going to, you know, throw this around anywhere, but like I've trusted it this far. I don't, and especially because it's a high school book, I don't think I would have expected it to just mutilate another person. Like maybe it'd be like, oh, it's just going to do something like kick someone in the shin type of pain. But that did (laughs) not happen here. They're now dying. (laughs) Now they're dying. You know, I thought I was giving them a wedgie. I didn't know it's split them (laughs) in half. So that was, that was, ooh, that escalated quickly. All right. Oh so, so good. That is settled. Uh, next question Felix Felices, the potion that gives you the, everything works in your favor, everything plays out the way you think. Very luck is boundless and limitless here. So, what would you do with it? That is a great question. Uh, yeah, liquid luck. What would I do with it? I feel like, truthfully, I would probably. It would have something to do with my degree, like trying to like (laughs) finish more quickly or whatever. I don't know. Maybe I would save it for some like very difficult conversation or I don't know. I I feel like I don't do enough things that are like drastic on a daily basis that I feel like I would need like good luck to do. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not like I'm not trying to extract a memory from someone. Like I don't I don't Mm. conduct investigations (laughs) that I'm like, oh, my gosh, this needs to go in my favor. I like teach students about literature. I'm like, what luck do I need in that? Like, it seems sort of strange. So anyway, that feels like a really lame answer. But maybe this is a more exciting take on that. What about this? I would take uh, Felix Felicis when I am like traveling somewhere and then hope that it intersects my path with either Chris Evans or Andy Samberg. <laughs> that's my, that's what I really, that's my real take. And the truth so, comes out. Yeah, that's what it is. I'm acting like I'm such a boring person and instead I'm just a celebrity stalker. So there it goes. <laughs> real, and also real quick, your degree, What what's your degree? I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast. Oh, yeah. It, well, probably for a good reason. <laughs> no, I am uh, working on my PhD in the English department at UNM writing about uh, 20th century experimental poetry and stand-up comedy. 
That's what that, my degree is. Woo-hoo. That's the coolest thing. You're over here saying like, oh, it's I'm lame, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you're a PhD candidate. Um, <laughs> that being said, though, as almost soon to be Dr. Sarah Warland, uh, just Josh over here um, is going to choose <laughs> what I would do. Just normal just Josh Perez over here would do taxes probably with Felix Felicis. <laughs> <laughs> I would take it to do my taxes. <laughs> it stresses me beyond everything. Okay, this is what my mom has always told me. I don't know if this should be broadcasted, but I'm going to say it anyway. Is that my mom's always like, because I get stressed about taxes too. And she's like, Sarah, I'm going to be totally real with you. You did not make enough money for the IRS to care at all whether or not you make a mistake yep. on your taxes. And I was like, you know, depressing but also encouraging thanks right. mom <laughs> i know i'm like the smallest fish in the entire i'm like a minnow in this giant ocean of big I fish know. and monsters and whales and i'm over here stressed and they're not at all which is <laughs> confusing and backwards but um but in my re- but i think in a more honest answer well i mean that is pretty honest but um another answer would be i think i would like take it and then just try to get a really cool like job or experience while taking it. Like I've always wanted to, to work on something or work for the ringer uh, network, which is another like pop culture tech movie or movies and sports and all that stuff. Uh, Just media company that just has really cool podcast. Like Shea Serrano is like a hero of mine. And so to, I would take it and then just start, I don't know, emailing people, I guess, or sending, and start applying <laughs> like, to things. Do like a little like dropper full at a time to like spread out the good oh, luck absolutely. and then just I, like try and email and talk to people. A hundred percent would not just get like, just blasted like freaking Harry just down the whole thing. I would definitely be but, weighing this okay. and measuring it out. In his defense, though, doesn't Slughorn say in the book that the two times of his life that he's taken Felix Felicis, they were the two most perfect days of his entire life. So I also think that that's a really interesting take is like sometimes people take it to just like have a wonderful day. Oh. I don't know. It's another good reason to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, we should probably move on to the next question. And and now that we have officially stalled out as we normally do in this quick round, quote unquote. um, Okay, Josh. So in this book movie, we are introduced to love potions and um, we are explained to that the smell of amortentia, the most powerful love potion, is it smells different for everyone um, according to what attracts them. So, Josh, what would you smell in amortentia? So, I'm not really sure what what this. I wasn't really sure. I was like, okay, wait, what does this mean? What like what are smells that I'm attracted to, or like are attractive? So, I just wrote down the three smells that are first came to my mind. And now I'm sad because as I thought about it more, there's plenty others, but that are way more ahead of these ones. But the three that I wrote down are pipe tobacco. Like (laughs) I just, there's something with someone smoking pipe tobacco and the aromatics of it, not smoking it, other someone else smoking it. Because I think as soon as I smoke it, it goes away. Uh, Yeah, the scent is different. Yeah, than the taste. So pipe tobacco, um, aromatic smell. And then Cantu is one of my favorite hair products, Cantu Leave-In Conditioner. Oh, I was like, I don't even know what the heck that is. 
<laughs> leave-in conditioner. I love it. It's the best. I use it every almost every day. And so to have that smell. And then this last one, I don't know if these three combined are going to be good at all because this last <laughs> one is baked pinto beans. But I don't like beans at all. Like, but like, I'm sorry, not baked, baking pinto beans, like as they're being made. <laughs> Just because I remember my mom would make them all the time. And I would always be like, what is that amazing, delicious smell? I go downstairs and it would be beans, and I'd instantly be so sad because I do not like refried beans. I don't really like like I'll eat them now as an adult, but like when I was a kid, I was like refusing that. But it would get me every single time because the smell was That's so hilarious. good, and I'd be so excited and then let down. So those are the three <laughs> the three smells that first came to mind. What about yours, Sarah? That's really funny. That's funny because one of mine is baking bread. And I think specifically, like there doesn't really have to be a specific type of bread, just like the scent of like baking bread. And mm. for me, it's very much a like r- casting back to childhood as well. So I wonder if there's like part of that is like as a child and being like safe and taken care of in the world. I don't know. Too much psychoanalysis. Um, so <laughs> one of them would be baking bread. Um, the next would be the scent of like the earth after it rains, which there's actually a word for that. It's called petrichor. Uh, that is one of my absolute favorite smells in the world. And then realistically, and then I'm like, this is so annoying because it's just Hermione over and over. Uh, (laughs) That mine would probably be like books, like old books or paper of some nature. Those are the things that that I love. So yeah, those are mine. Those make way more sense than mine completely. I I don't eat beans. Just means we have different olfactory senses and that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Okay. Oh, yeah. And then our last one. This is a would you rather question, Josh. So buckle up. Would you rather be called Juan Juan? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Or would you rather hug a dead Aragog? Oh, easy. A thousand percent hug dead Aragog. I would would rather do a lot. Uh, no, I'll do that a thousand percent. I do not want to be called Juan Juan or anything that reminds me of Lavender Brown. Josh's, Josh's absolute visceral like hatred of lavender is one of the best things about this entire thing. Every time she showed up on the screen, I think I texted, go away <laughs> while we were watching. I hate her. Ugh. She so makes please. me so angry. That's so oh funny. Wait, gosh. what would you rather? Would you rather be called Juan Juan or hug a dead spider? I mean, because there are not a lot of parameters around the being called Juan Juan, I'm like, I could be called Juan Juan once and then it would be over. And then I'd be like, that was weird, but like, it didn't really bother me. Um, right. I do not like creatures. Like I just, like the big spiders. Yeah, not a thing. I'm not like super scared of spiders. I just like don't, it's like dirty and gross. And I don't know. Not, I, don't, not I don't appreciate you creating loopholes on the question that you came up with for this. It's not one time being called one one. No, it's the rest of your life. No, that was absolutely not the. <laughs> this was my work. I can interpret it however I want. That's how dramatic I guess I was. I was like, would I rather be called one one for the rest of my life or hug a dead <laughs> no. spider every day once? I was every like, day wow, once, you, hug a spider. <laughs> you really took this really intense. Um, I did not mean for it to be that wild. That's funny. Yeah. That's funny. So probably, okay. I mean, yeah, just like once and then be like, yeah, probably don't call me that ever again. And then they'd be like, okay. And then That's so funny. Okay. So the the next the next thing is the magical item. Is that correct? The magical item. Yes. Which object would you choose? So far, I have 
mostly the dumbest things um, besides <laughs> my magical tent. I love my magical tent, but I have the Mars map. I have a wand. I have a Weasley clock, uh, which is basically find my friends on my iPhone. I have <laughs> the ability to shapeshift like Tonks. Um, so that's what I got so far. Sarah, what do you have so far? Uh, so far, I have the invisibility cloak, a wand, Lupin's suitcase, the pensive, and the two-way mirror that Sirius gives me. Ah, that's right. The two-way mirror. Okay, okay. So I feel like I always choose first, so I'm going to let you go first this time. Perfect. This is the best thing because I'm going to go with the... I, th- I feel like there's a very obvious one that everyone would choose and should choose and I'm going to choose. And that is the cabinet. No, I'm just kidding. It's not the cabinets. It's the feel. Felix Felices. I'm hands down choosing that. I am. I knew you were going to uh, that to I the had grave. Too. Yep, that was one of my, that was my first choice. But I figured I should like let you have something that's worthwhile in your <laughs> in your choosing, other than these like really weird lame things. Sorry, trashing it's okay. on your stuff. I understand. But. Okay, well then, if you take Felix Felices, then while I do feel that I should also be able to choose Felix Felices because I could just brew it for myself, but I'm mm. going to choose something different for the sake of being different. I'm going to choose a pygmy puff from this. Um, there, I think there's like one in the um, in the movie very briefly, but they're the things that are at the Weasleys wizard wizarding wheezes that Fred and George are like breeding, and they're tiny little. I looked this up. They're small puff skines, so that's like the magical creature that they are. They just seem really cute. They like kind of look like. Um, a hamster, but I feel like because they're magical, they're like way more useful and like cute and they could take care of themselves better. But I did find out this insane fact, not like a huge animal person. So I'm like a little iffy about this. And this like sent me over the edge of like, maybe I would just like want to touch a small pygmy puff and then like leave it and not actually own it. But puff skines, and again, keeping in mind, a puff skine is a magical creature. It's not real. But they have been known to eat boogers out of their owners' noses while what they are asleep. Earth? Can you imagine waking up and having like a pygmy puff's little like tongue up your nose, like sucking out your brains? No, I don't want to no, imagine. Yeah, <laughs> me either. That freaked me out when I looked that up. But well, otherwise, they seem choice. very cute. And I would probably not allow it to be anywhere near me while I am sleeping. I was actually jealous that you're choosing. I was like, I haven't even thought about magical pets. And then I was like, oh, this no, is I a really cool did. one. Didn't we talk about magical pets one episode? Probably. We both I just were haven't like, obviously any. an owl. Like we no, would def- uh, true. definitely choose owls. Yes, yeah. true. I mean, in terms of picking one as my selection, I just haven't done it because I'm not a smart person. But that's a good That's a good second point or uh, pick. You know, yeah, mine's thanks. a little better. Cool. I mean, yeah. And I would just brew some for myself since I would be an excellent potion maker. <laughs> why are you laughing at that what you think i wouldn't um no that not at all i think you'd you'd make a, a great potion of that um <laughs> i just don't have to make it i guess i don't know why, why. <laughs> <laughs> just sliding through life with other people making stuff for you wow oh. world history all over again i was gonna say i was gonna make a comment about you know life and political gender disparity but then I was like, ooh, we're going to go there. So <laughs> the, speaking of gender disparity, Hermione Haymaker. Just <laughs> <laughs> Girls can punch stuff too. <laughs> and so here we are with the Hermione Haymaker. And this is, okay, one person from this movie in Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, Hermione 
hits Malfoy directly in the face. And so now we have this category, the Hermione Haymaker, and you get to choose one character from this movie where Hermione is throwing her best punch. Sarah, what do you got for us? I absolutely would love to just punch Ron in this movie. (laughs) He is so annoying. He is just like the classic, like absolutely bumbling idiot boy who is totally unaware of everything going on around him. I would like to clarify that statement and say, I believe men can be sensitive and understanding, which is demonstrated by Harry in this entire movie in his friendship with Hermione. And Ron is just so dumb. He's so dumb throughout all of this. I just want to punch him in the face to like knock some sense into him and then move forward. So I would punch Ron in the face. I think this is your second pick. The second time you've picked Ron in the series, I feel like. Really? <laughs> Which oh is gosh. really telling. You're like, no, he deserves two punches. <laughs> two haymakers. Wait, where else did I punch Ron? I don't know. It what could other... easily be any of them because he is pretty yeah. frustrating in You're many right. of the movies. So especially You're when it right. comes to Hermione. But um, it might have been Such Goblet an of idiot. Fire. But Probably. I oh, think... yeah, because when he's like being all upset at Harry for like yep. accidentally putting... okay. Clearly, Ron just infuriates me through and through. So there's that's a telling sign of who I am. So anyway, well, Ron always because he's annoying. No, that's that's a great point, and um, I will bring back to that point as a segue into the next part. But I will say first, though, my Hermione Haymakers is she's punching Lavender Brown like she is throwing her <laughs> best. Wait, she's is giving it, her the one is it Hermione punching someone, or is it like? If I could punch someone, who would I punch? Oh, I'm I mean, I, not mine punching. Mine stays the same. Mine does not. I'm not hitting Lavender Brown personally. <laughs> I oh, will not okay. punch her. You imagine? I guess that is. Imagine, that would, I would, no. That would kill yeah, and I would go to true. jail and this is terrible. Um, okay, well, but Hermione, this, it remains the same for me. It remains the same for me. Hermione should punch him and I should punch him. There so, you go. That I, I, Hermione can punch Lavender Brown, I will not. I will stand my. I will stand uh, aside. But <laughs> I think that's a fair choice. Not just because of how I get it. Like, like I think she plays her character really well. I think that there's people and people who swoon or simp over people like that. I get it. It's fine, whatever. But I think it's more like Hermione punching her because of how much she's frustrated, the turmoil that she goes through because of Ron and Lavender Brown's relationship. And really, Ron is just clueless. And he should like, I don't understand why all the people don't like uh, Hermione Granger in all the characters in this. So I think that Hermione should punch her um, for sure in this movie. Here's, okay, I just have to insert a little bit of like some Lavender apology here. Because why should Lavender be punched for Ron's terrible decision? Mm, that's a good point lavender right like it doesn't i mean lavender and hermione are not like super chummy throughout this entire series and so it's like why should lavender know necessarily that hermione has this huge crush on ron and like when most of the time they spend time hating each other like to the outside world it would look like they are mortal enemies And Mm. so it's Ron's fault. Why should Lavender be punched for something that's Ron's doing? That's fair. That's fair. Okay, fine. Movie Ginny. Is that a better answer? (laughs) Hermione should punch (laughs) Movie Ginny for delivering a very bad first kiss. Well, Harry should get punched too for delivering a very bad first kiss. Yeah, they should both just like, bam, both get punched punched in the face. At the same time. Like, man, come on, sell this a little bit. You're getting paid 
buckaroos to make out. So do it well. That's so funny. Well, the, okay. So the whole Hermione, Ron, and Lavender Brown little mix-up uh, is a great segue into the Quibbler's unpopular opinions, which is yes. we are here to announce our unpopular opinions. This was added added category from the last uh, Order of the Phoenix, the last movie, as the Quibbler has a lot of opinions, and they're usually very, very, very un- unpopular. So the Hermione thing, that's where my thats where my unpopular opinion went to, is that Ron and Hermione falling in love in general. As much as I'm like, oh yeah, Hermione punched Lavender for that reason, because you're in love with him and all that. My unpopular opinion is like, well, or just don't, don't fall in or, love with yeah. Ron. Like, I, <laughs> or just choose someone else. <laughs> I, I really like the idea of Hermione and Harry, and we'll get to that later. But, but uh, anyway, so the whole Ron and her, like, I feel like obviously they've liked each other, they flirted, and there's been little moments before that. But this movie feels like it's actually solidifying with how she cares for him. Um, how she like uh, the little things she does of knocking Cormac out of the way, the the smile, the giggle, the the, it, the infatuation with Ron, and it really, really coming out. Um, I think, and then with the birds, the bird scene where she texts the Ron with the birds. So I think um, this movie really hammers home that f- where it's like, oh yeah, this is this is gonna happen, and it is upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> so upsetting. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This will probably be one of our larger arguments of the entire series when we get to should Harry and Hermione have ended up together, which I will vehemently oppose, but I will not get into that right now. Um, But I do have to say, I think that Hermione and Harry's friendship and the way that's portrayed throughout this movie is so precious. Um, It really is. And definitely kind of sets up some of what we find out in book seven. But my unpopular opinion also kind of remains in this same vein. However, my unpopular opinion is that Cormac should have been goalkeeper over Ron. Oh. Like one, one, Ron only becomes goalkeeper because Hermione magically intervenes. And two, I'm like, listen, I understand that sometimes it's terrible to be on teams with people who are like, have their inflated egos. I get that. But also Ron is like the exact opposite, but still very problematic in that he's like problematic for the team because he has zero ego. Like his mm. like total lack of confidence is also destructive to the team. And I just think that, yeah, I don't know. I, I, that's my opinion. It's probably unpopular. Cormac should have been goalkeeper over Ron. And that's the T. This is wild. I'm agreeing with that. Like, I actually follow, maybe it's because maybe it's more popular than we thought. I don't know. Maybe it is unpopular and I like to be different, but I agree. It's like, oh, I didn't even think about that. And in this moment, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Just that's what I think. <laughs> All right. All right. Here we go. We're moving into our final the home stretch, uh, our rankings. So we're going to rank our books. So we're kind of building off of like where this falls and how much we enjoy um, the Harry Potter books, and also then where the movie falls in how we're conceiving of our ordering of the movies. So Josh, do you want to take this one first? Yeah, so my rankings of this, they don't really shift very much, but um, I think overall it is it is still the Prisoner Azkaban and Half-Blood Prince are interchangeable one for me, I feel like. They're one and two always, depending on how I feel, the most recent rewatch, the thing I'm thinking about. So those ones are always top two. Half Blood Prince has really grown on me over the last um, last uh, couple of rewatches and rereads. So, but then 
I'm going to say Goblet of Fire, then uh, Sorcerer's Stone, Order of the Phoenix, and then the last one is the uh, Chamber of Secrets. But I do think, though, movie-wise, I might actually... They're pretty similar, but I might put Half-Blood Prince over Prisoner of Azkaban. But once again, they're the same. But other than that, my rankings... My rankings are pretty pretty similar for both. You're so consistent. I feel like mine are all over the place. <laughs> it's like so uh, descriptive of my wild brain. So my book and movie rankings are very different. I, for books, I'm sticking with, and this is wild because for a long time, um, Half-Blood Prince was in my top two. But upon the last rereading of Goblet of Fire, I have realized I just think that book is magnificent. Goblet of Fire, oh man, it gives me like the chills even thinking about like the last like uh, eighth of that book where it's like the 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 graveyard scene. Oh my gosh. Anyway, okay, I'll I'll be called. But um, so my book rankings, book one, my first book, my favorite book is Goblet of Fire, followed very quickly by Prisoner of Azkaban. I think that's a masterpiece as well. And then I'm actually going to put um, Half-Blood Prince as my third favorite. And then moving into Sorcerer's Stone, Chamber of Secrets. And then as was revealed last week, um, my <laughs> least favorite book is uh, Order of the Phoenix. So there's that. And then my movies, though, flip around a little bit. So my favorite movie is Prisoner of Azkaban. And then I'm going to put Half-Blood Prince below. That's my second favorite movie there and then goblet of fire uh sorcerer's stone would be my fourth favorite and then i flip-flop for movies in these last two order of the phoenix would be um right above source or uh chamber of secrets for the movies oh wow 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 i know controversial you know it's okay because i think my rankings probably will change at some point in the next uh next because i'll forget but <laughs> so those are our rankings and now page or picture who won the the book or the movie and back to my normal assessment after our last episode page wins this one for me hands down i agree this is this one uh, hands down i love the book i love the book and it's so good it's, it's so, so good. great I realize this, that sounds very, as I'm saying this, I'm like, wait, this sounds so stupid, though, because I rank the movie higher than the book in my rankings. I agree. Which seems really inconsistent. But it's just because I love all of the books more than I love all of the movies. But I think the, the book is better. I think that's the hard part, right? Because it's, it's it, the lower the ranking doesn't mean it's trash. It just means I don't yeah, like it as it much. it just means it's like, it's like in my like opinion, right? It doesn't, yeah, exactly. I love so. all of them. But like in my ranking of love, yeah, favorite. It's time. okay. That's all right. We'll can <laughs> I'll convince you for the before the next recording. So doubt that, it. <laughs> and so thank you guys for listening. We will be back here soon. I'm excited. Deathly Hollows part Woo! seven. It's gonna be great. I love, 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 love. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm super excited to talk about that one. So bringing it all together. Stay tuned. <laughs> keep listening. Keep uh, keep reading, and uh, you'll hear from us soon. Bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Medium Project. We hope we got you thinking. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you have friends who might enjoy these conversations, please share this podcast with them. Check out the show notes. You can access material we discussed in the episode, and you can get future episodes sent directly to your email. Spoiler alert, there may be a few other opportunities for you in the show notes as well. 
This is a Three Milks Media production produced by Josh Perez and co-produced by Sarah Warland. Keep reading, keep watching, and keep listening.